there are lots of unanswered questions about the coronavirus and anyone that says to you that they know they're talking crap um i think they're being economical with the truth i don't think it's possible to lock down societies if you lock down a society as soon as you open it the virus will come in i don't we don't know how effective or useful coronavirus vaccines are going to be if they if we ever get a vaccine that works we don't know which antibodies are protective and how long they're going to be protective for people often believe that if they've had a test mm-hmm. that there's a 100% certainty around whether it's positive or negative okay there is not and whether you can get the virus whether you can get the infection again Hey, welcome to another episode of Voices in My Head. It's been a while since the last podcast episode because I wanted to get the right person to you. And also, uh, I was taking a bit of a break. I've been working on getting my book out. The book is also called Voices in My Head. It's going to be available in a couple of weeks as long as soon as this lockdown situation eases up a bit and uh, the distribution of the books can go back on Amazon and the other platforms. The Kindle version will also be available shortly. So please do get it. Tell me what you think. Your feedback and your views and your reviews would mean a lot to me. I have Dr. Arun Menon with me on the podcast today. He is the right person to answer all the questions I have about uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, etc., etc. All the misinformation, confusion that exists if you look at mainstream media telling us one thing when another expert is saying something else. I want to ask him about masks, I want to ask him about vaccines, I want to ask him about several things. So that's coming up shortly. To introduce Dr. Arun Menenchu, and he's a, a expert on public health and epidemiology is a part of public health. He's trained in public health, tropical and sexual health medicine. He's a director of three sexual health units in regional and remote Australia. He's the adjunct associate professor at James Cook University Townsville. He's the clinical advisor to International Division of Australian Society of HIV, Hepatitis and Sexual Health Medicine. Mostly he works in rural and remote Australia and he also manages the HIV and sexual health program in Papua New Guinea and some of the Pacific Islands. So, he is someone who has years and years of experience in this field. My mother says the first time she heard the word epidemiology was from him. in the early 1980s and that's how he came on my radar to come on my podcast so i connected with him i hope you enjoy this episode and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and most importantly go buy my book so without uh, wasting uh, much time i think you know we can start so typically what i do is uh, whoever comes on i i shoot or the record the introduction beforehand so i can do a good job but okay. uh, uh, and i've already done that so people have heard me say some words about who you are but because it flew over my head i i would really like if you can just elaborate on on the public health aspect and then i can go into i think it's it's nice to hear from from you for a layman like myself of uh, you know what is it that you really do because uh, there are a lot of words in there which uh, may be confusing for people like sexual health and and um, you know public health and so we've we've heard these words uh, more and more over the last few years so um 
I basically went to medical school, trained as a doctor, but um, I think health is more is much more than just a doctor seeing a patient. Right. Um, and so I, um, when I finished my training in the UK, um, I went off to work in first in Africa, mm -hmm. where, where very quickly I realized that just seeing patients is not enough because, um, as you know, health is much more dependent on a lot of things. Um, for instance, I saw one of your YouTube videos where you talked about using time productively mm -hmm. and you went out into the garden and did some yoga and you, you said, you know, the um, atmosphere, the sky was blue and, mm -hmm. and how, you know, the air was very clear. So I think you highlighted an important point there where life is more about just, you know, illness and seeing a doctor. It's much more about how you live, where you live. Um, you know, what sort of uh, um, things you do to keep yourself healthy. Sure. And essentially that's what public health is about. So when I went to work in Africa, we weren't just seeing patients, we were also paying attention to food, to mm. agriculture, um, to, you know, clean water. Um, and where I was, there was an epidemic of um, chest infections, respiratory problems. Right. And it turned out it was because at night to keep warm, people are burning charcoal within, you oh. know, within their huts and so on. So they're breathing in carbon dioxide, carbon, carbon monoxide. So I decided then it was not sufficient just to be a doctor that I had to sort of train in public health to understand better what, you know, how um, people lived. Mm -hmm. and what we loosely call the determinants of health, um, which are much more than, you know, medic medications. And if someone's got diabetes, giving them, uh, you know, medication and stuff, it, it, it's, it's much more than that. So that's how my interest in public health was first sort of kind of ignited. Um, and then I think we met you when we were on our way to the Solomon Islands. Mm -hmm. And when I, when we got to the Solomon Islands, it was actually even much more obvious. And this so was, was 86, 1986, 1985? 89, 1989. Oh, 89 mm -hmm. was it? Okay, right, mm -hmm. right, yeah. Uh, it was much more obvious that, I mean, for instance, I was in charge of a TV program. Mm -hmm. And um, it wasn't about seeing a patient and listening to the chest and giving, giving them some pills. It was much more about the household. Um, why is it happening? Getting to the bottom of why it's happening? Yeah, why, you know, why are people susceptible to TV? How do you, you know, what happens when you live in a closed household? I mean, TV almost mirrors, um, I, I know TV isn't a glamorous disease, but it almost mirrors what's happening with COVID-19. Yes, I was going to quiz you on that. Yeah. yeah. And um, then I went, left um, New Zealand, I uh, left um, the Solomon Islands and went to train in public health in New Zealand. Right. Um, and that's where I trained in public health and also was working on some sexual health programs. And mm -hmm. so I decided to actually do some clinical training in sexual health. Um, right. So, so tell you, me, you know, uh, how, so epidemiology is a part of public health or is it vice yeah. versa? No, no, no. Epidemiology is a small part of public health. Right. So, that's, yeah. That's what I was, um, I was a bit confused about that aspect. 
So epidemiology is, of course, it's the buzzword these days because of what's what's yeah. going on with COVID and 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 coronavirus, etc. So epidemiology is essentially an epidemiologist is someone who studies infectious diseases. Not 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 only infectious diseases, but also non-infectious diseases. For instance, India has one of the largest populations of diabetics in the world. Right. Right. So it's about understanding, you know, what the population distribution is, who gets diabetes. Mm-hmm. So you might say, for instance, uh, I'm not saying this is true in India, but you might say, for instance, you know, um, uh, diabetes is a condition of men or women over the between the ages of 30 and 60. Um, then you'd look at the distribution and see how uh, how it's distributed in the various age bands. You look at um, um, possibly whether it's you know one type of diabetes versus another type of diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at you know racial distributions because you know no population is uh, homogeneous except if you be in Japan or somewhere one of those places. Mm-hmm. Most populations are heterogeneous. Okay. So it's the same with infections. I mean, if you take COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. you've got an outbreak. You want to understand who gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the age, sex distribution, you want to understand how people get it. Um, And so all that is epidemiology, the description of um, conditions, whether they're infectious or non-infectious. So it's about all disease, not just infectious disease, but I guess it's being taken quite literally for infectious disease at the moment, because that's what's on everybody's mind. And, uh, And trust me, that's the last thing I really want to you know, keep hopping on on my podcast, but uh, it's just that, you know, there are so many unanswered questions and I uh, have strayed away from, and I always have, and, and I've typically stayed away from mainstream media because uh, unfortunately a lot of what they say is bullshit or is fake news or is paid for news and there is some agenda behind it. But this time I was, for, I've, I've been following a little bit of mainstream media and a lot of uh, parallel media like podcasts and and uh, some oh. YouTube and, and and the information is it's like chalk and cheese. Uh, that, that's why I've got so many things to discuss with you. From from uh, some people say wearing masks is, is totally useless unless you're a surgeon who's wearing it and he's preparing it to prevent the infection. He's giving it to his patient. Some people are equating wearing masks with trying to stop a mosquito with a chain link fence. Uh, impossible. The others yeah, are saying, sure. you, you know, you, I, I, but the rules are, I mean, I can't step out of my house in Delhi uh, without wearing a mask. Uh, nobody's really checking what kind of mask am I wearing? Am I wearing it like this or this? Or, you know, half yeah. my, the staff at home is uh, sometimes wearing a mask, sometimes not. They're, they're, they're tying handkerchiefs. I mean, there is just so much uh, information that is available to us. And, who do you really trust? And and uh, and even this was a question like really further down in my list, but I guess it's it's a relevant time to ask you uh, that you know uh, there is just so much conflicting information. How does a, the layman get life-saving information at this time? I think um, the, the the one thing you have to do is you have to move away from social media because information on social media can be exaggerated or Google can be exaggerated. You know, for instance, um, today I saw a patient and they had a certain condition and they went, yes, you know, 
uh, I said, did you Google it? And they go, yes, I Googled it. And I said, half, you know, there are 3 million different pieces of information about this infection on Google. Most of them are absolutely wrong. Essentially, what you have to do is you've got to log into and there are certain websites, you know, that do give you good information. So if you're taking COVID-19, you know, CDC, um, WHO, um, and there are other non-governmental organizations that give you good information on COVID-19. Um, one, I, I'm a, I told you in my bio that I'm a, um, advisor to the International Division of the Australasian Society of HIV, Hepatitis and, and Sexual Health. Mm -hmm. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but we've been working on some regional protocols to disseminate information. Most of the people that we work with, the people that I work with, live in remote locations. Mm -hmm. And the health workers there often don't have access to the internet. So we've got to try and find ways of delivering information quickly you know without excessive cost sure. because data a phone costs a lot of money so we try and do that quickly so we've come up with a whole series of short messages which we pass through a whole lot of um, uh, scientific people to make sure that we're giving them the right information so yeah. there are reputable outlets out there the other mainstream newspapers uh, and uh, media organizations like the BBC, for instance, um, if you look at uh, global newspapers like The Guardian, Weekly and so on, it, they do tend to research the information reasonably well. Mm -hmm. So you can actually trust those sites. Today, I think Google's put on, because Trump's been um, um, tweeting a lot of fake stuff they've put on fact check, you know. So I don't know whether you can trust Twitter, but uh, what I'm trying to say, not very elegantly, is that trust some of the mainstream stuff right. and avoid the social media because otherwise you get conspiracies about, you know, 5G and all sorts of things. Yeah, so there's a ton of that that I've also, uh, I, I, and I didn't want to bring it up at all because I don't want to get banned off YouTube. I've just started out. And, and so I can be transparent about it. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff yeah. that, I, that I have read heard perhaps some uh, you know that I, I do agree with as well but I can't speak about it but having said that has why not why can't you speak about be it because uh, I know a lot of people who have this video will be taken down from YouTube as simple as that the moment I try and make a con uh, uh, the moment I try and make a connection of 5g and and even I, and I don't I'm not saying I believe that I do I believe that 5g uh, creates problems in a person's immune system? Yes. Do I believe that 4G and 3G do it? Yes, they also do. I mean, any sort of EMF radiation causes issues in the human body. They, they, this is something we're dealing with that didn't exist mm -hmm. uh, when we were cavemen and when we didn't have this technology. So this is all new stuff that we're having to deal with. Um, this, the same way, uh, you know, we didn't have GMO crops and et cetera, et cetera. So this is, this is a rabbit hole that, that I, I don't want to go down <laughs> at, the, at the moment with you. But I was just going to ask you that hasn't the WHO... I can just tell you, I, let me just tell you that I argue with my son all the time. So you can throw anything you like about okay. it and I'll okay, be more great. than happy to... All I'm going to say is that the word conspiracy theory was coined 
was it there was a conspiracy to coin the word conspiracy theory by the cia when jfk yeah. when jfk was assassinated just so that they could neutralize any other narrative that was coming on board because they wanted everybody to stick to you know we this guy did it. you know what i mean so the, even even the word conspiracy theory there's a conspiracy behind coining the word conspiracy yeah, okay. and, and i love i love reading about this stuff but but that's not what this this book okay. is about sorry But, no, no, that's, that's, no, no, that's that's cool. I, I, I'd love to talk to you about this, uh, and we can do a part two of this podcast <laughs> just on just on COVID conspiracy theories. But but hasn't the WHO got it wrong several times? And and that's one of the things that is kind of being brought up even by the some of the mainstream guys now that the WHO said this, and then they said that, and then they, so is it that they have no idea what's going on, or there is some sort of uh, I mean the 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 other explanation is that there was an agenda to kind of not you know give the exact information initially and i don't understand why that would be look i'm not i i think that who is a good organization we often use a lot of their work which is incredibly reputable mm-hmm. um i think as far as covid-19 is concerned and the spread of covid-19 is concerned it happened very rapidly Right. and i i do not you know having worked with bureaucracies i don't believe that any organization would have had the capacity to react um as quickly as that i mean the outbreak um which started in wuhan was so extensive mm-hmm. and i think it um, i think with outbreaks often um sometimes countries cities public health departments get caught unawares and uh, covid-19 spreads really really quickly i mean you may you may have seen i think um just a, a couple of weeks ago in in um i can't remember whether it was in apple news or somewhere else they said a man had spent two and a half hours in uh, a restaurant and infected 52 people right um, i'm actually not surprised by that now because we do know that it's extremely infectious sure. and that and will actually yeah so please continue yeah no no and and you've seen all the the um in australia a significant number of the infections have been related to cruise ships right and mm-hmm. you know these are incubators of infection and remember coronavirus uh, you know is the coronavirus is spread through respiratory droplets So anyone within 2 meters of someone mm-hmm. has a reasonable chance of being infected. So coming back to the original thing I, I I'm I'm not sure we can you know say that WHO didn't react fast enough, reacted too fast, too slow. I think that's not it's not possible in the midst of an outbreak like this to make those observations. I think what we have to do is go back and say at some point in time what happened how did the various organizations behave mm-hmm. um in these situations and how can we now um plan for the future because coronavirus is only one virus there are lots of other viruses that are emerging all the time right you, you we'd like to think that we can protect ourselves we can't hmm. we simply cannot protect ourselves we have to i mean you know 
um, the, a significant proportion of human infections have emerged from um, um, animals and they're called right. zoonoses. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and we, we can't protect ourselves from that. They, viruses will emerge all the time. And we, but this is, we've survived for thousands and thousands of years because as human beings, we're equipped to deal with, we're, we're, we're made up of millions of viruses, what I'm led to believe. Mm. And, and we're constantly, our immune system is constantly learning about new ones. It, the process starts since we were born. Uh, so why is this, why, what is this? And, and how much do we know so far in terms of why this COVID-19 has, you know, become a superstar of viruses versus, uh, you know, like the swine flu or versus any other flu? So we know that the virus has emerged from bats. Mm -hmm. Okay, that much is clear. But right. we don't understand what the intermediate host is. I know we talk a lot about, everyone talks a lot about the wet markets being responsible for the transmission of this virus. But right. we don't know what the intermediate host is. So we know we've got the virus in the bats. Mm -hmm. We know we've got the virus in human beings but we don't understand what the intermediate host is. Could it be pangolins, you know, which are a mammal? Mm -hmm. um, we don't know. Could it be because people have been eating bats? And um, I, I don't know if you know about the theory of HIV, but we think that HIV emerged, um, it adapted to human beings. But again, we don't understand what the intermediary process was. No. So I think to sort of say, oh, well, it's emerged because of the wet markets in China, is a bit too premature. We simply don't know. I think that in the midst of a pandemic like this, people want answers, but we can't give up, we can't give those definitive answers, and that creates uncertainty. Right. But generally speaking, Yamir, you know, life is uncertain. There are no certainties, and um, even medicine doesn't doesn't have a huge amount of certainty. We like to think that, you know, you go and see a doctor, they can fix you. You know, you've got a particular condition, they can fix you. But there's a lot of uncertainty around sure. it. Sure. Um, I think with the same with the coronavirus, we are, you know, we've had, what, over 5 million infections, 350,000 deaths. We'd like some certainty. I'd like to know what's happening, how it's happening, who's in control. Right. Hey that's an exercise in futility and just to step back so is it's it's 100 percent confirmed that it's come out of bats right well th that's what we think the origin is because it's so similar to theory sorry to interrupt it's a theory that it's come out of bats so i think there are some scientific certainties right so we know that it's a virus that's emerged from mutation of viruses in bats okay how it translate how it transmitted and mutated in between to reach human beings is a lot is not very clear so that brings me to my next question is was it man-made because that's another uh, and i i wouldn't even call it conspiracy theory because a lot of mainstream guys are saying that no now we know it's come out of the lab it leaked out of the lab in wuhan and blah 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 so Look, is there any evidence um, to justify that i'm only a doctor but i will go by what the cia says then right. the CIA says that they don't, and the US intelligence agencies say that 
that they don't believe it's come out of 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 the labs okay. so you know that's what they're saying um has it come out of a lab no i don't know but you know when you reach back to the old days um not so long ago they used to say well hiv was um um has been transmitted because um you know through the polio vaccine and there were all sorts of conspiracy theories about uh, ab about hiv as well okay so i, I simply uh, you know i'm not saying that it hasn't come out of a lab because you can never what's the word uh, refute any statement to its absolute but the evidence at this point indicates that that it hasn't but who knows what will happen down the track i mean you know will there be more evidence which suggests that um it's come out of a lab at this point there is no evidence to suggest that someone in wuhan or wherever actually manufactured this virus and yeah, it got out of control bioweapon I mean, or whatever it's a, it's a convenient narrative but there's no evidence for it well the, the latter part of that question which i written down was i i wrote does it matter because isn't it what's no. more important at the moment is dealing with it solving the world's problem uh, or focusing on solving problems rather than i mean it, is, it doesn't matter really right did it came out of a lab or not and for someone like yourself or the rest of the you know the scientists and experts all over the world who are working on this it's just they they just trying to solve the problem i really don't think they care whether this came out of a lab or not unless it and helps to know in some way and you can tweak the way you look at it the solution i don't know uh yeah man i mean you hit the nail on the head it doesn't matter where the virus has come from we have to deal with the consequences of it and um i think it's very simple um to say it's come out of china it's come out of a lab you know if people are certain about it it might give them a bit of comfort mm -hmm. but essentially it's bullshit mm. it doesn't matter who knows it's there now it's like you know you've got um, a lot of infections which have basically are zoonoses mm. which have you know come from animals have mutated and now are present in humans right does it matter how it happens no we have to deal we have to deal with the situation so not the, with the theory of so how this, it emerged uh, reminds me of i was seeing well obviously the one of the most popular movies to go back and see now is contagion i don't know if you've seen ah. that and in that when this their particular thing, the the disease is spreading uh the head of the cdc is called in by one of these army guys for an emergency meeting and he's he says do you think somebody's trying to weaponize the bird flu he says nobody needs to weaponize the bird flu the birds already doing that yeah so i found that quite uh, amusing and i you know i remember that at this stage uh, another thing we had discussed when we were planning to do this when i was speaking to you over the uh, over the whatsapp call was your view on this whole situation globally versus this lockdown versus the slowdown and because uh, again there are so much conflicting information and governments are learning on the fly now i think there is a pretty clear tilt towards the fact that the lockdown doesn't seem to be working and the slowdown that's been created because of the lockdown in economies is perhaps going to end up killing more people than the disease especially yeah. in a developing country like india 
And this takes us back to what we were talking about originally about the determinants of health. Mm -hmm. This is a virus that we have to live with, you know, in my view. I'm not someone that's high up in, in the global bureaucracy, but it's pretty obvious that this is a virus we have to live with. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the epidemiology of it, coming back to that big word earlier, mm -hmm. um, up to CDC says that up to a third of people have no, in, no symptoms. Right. And then some people will have mild symptoms, some will have moderate symptoms, and some will have severe symptoms. And the severity of the symptoms is related to chronic medical conditions like, you know, uh, unfortunately, if you are much older, your immune system is um, uh, less responsive. You know, if you're a diabetic, if you're overweight, if you've got cardiovascular conditions, renal, kidney problems, all the rest of it. So what, you know, in our, I don't think it's possible to lock down societies. If you lock down a society, as soon as you open it, the virus will come in. Right. You know, because we, I mean, Australia is relatively lucky. We're an island mm -hmm. and we, um, the government here locked down very early. Mm -hmm. We stopped the international flights and, you know, we were in, um, we were in Perth when this started to happen. Mm -hmm. And Sumita, my, uh, uh, Sumita, my uh, da our daughter, had to get back to London because she worked. We got her on the second last flight out right, to London, right. Mm -hmm. right? They locked down completely. And in fact, anyone that came in had to either initially go into self-isolation and then into quarantine. Right. But we're an island. Mm. So you can lock down an island and, you know, <laughs> we've only got 25 million people. Yeah, I was going to say the population I mean, is not really... Uh... That's like, no, you, I've got 25 you, million people in this vicinity probably. Right? Just, exactly. Yeah, my back door is 25 million people. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, you know, that's my view too. So you can lock down a society where you've got a few people who live. I mean, you know, we've got a lot of space here. Right, right, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, I live in a town of 200,000 people, which doesn't have a lot of people coming in at all and all the cases we've had have been imported from overseas you right. can do that mm -hmm. right what but as soon as you open societies up again as soon as you open travel up again oh, i yeah. mean for instance we had um we've got a ship um and i forget um it's a maritime ship that's mm -hmm. coming to western australia um and sorry, forgive me, I can't remember whether they were bringing something in or taking something out. And seven or eight of those people have COVID-19. Right. So we isolated them. But if we hadn't isolated them and they'd come on, a sh on shore, mm -hmm. they would have infected other people. So it's not possible to control this virus. It's not like HIV, mm -hmm. which is sexually transmitted. Yes. Yes. So, you know, you've got two people having sex there's a certain probability one in a thousand uh -huh. if you're a male or a female that you can transmit the infection this virus can infect a lot of people right. simultaneously right right and that, that's when that the, the fancy are not words 
come into play, which I've had to educate myself on. So which, can you just speak a bit about that in terms of what we know, the how infect basically to, to ask how infectious is this really or what we know so far? So RO that you talk about is what they call the reproductive rate. Mm -hmm. So the reproductive rate is a, um, um, is a product it's a, of um, the transmissibility versus, you know, people who are susceptible. It's a sort of, it's just a mathematical model. Mm -hmm. um, if you've got a reproductive rate of greater than one, it means that one person can infect more than one person, mm -hmm. and that can lead to an outbreak. If you've got a reproductive rate of less than one, mm -hmm. that means one person infects less than one person. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that over time, the infection may not necessarily disappear, but it's not gonna cause too many issues. So that's what they mean by the reproductive rate. So the reproductive rate of COVID-19 depends on where you are, mm -hmm. depends on the vicinity of people, depends on the um, number of people around. But effectively, they're saying it's around between one and three. Right. So one person with COVID-19 can infect around one to three other people. Right. And so when we know that this is as infectious as it is, and there's no debate about that. And so do our governments or our people really gullible enough to believe that by locking people down, they're never going to get it? Because what I've led to believe is that we're either we've all already had it or we're going to get it uh, in the near future, not even the distant future, in the near future. Because I think... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's an excellent observation. And I think, you know, what will happen is that, yes, we lock people, lock down. There's a damping down of the outbreak. Mm -hmm. But then as soon as people start moving around, they're going to be exposed to the infection. And, and so it goes right back up then. So it goes, you know, you're going to have waves of the infection. You're going to have outbreaks of the infection. And of course, it's right that the public health authorities, whether they're in India or in China, then damp, you know, try and control those outbreaks. Mm -hmm. The reason for controlling those outbreaks is to reduce the number of people at the severe end of the spectrum. Right. Okay? Yep. Because no society has enough medical support at the severe end. Mm -hmm. You know, so for instance, Australia only had a at the start of the outbreak, we've got a lot more now, but at the start of the outbreak, we only had two or 3,000 people who, were, um, um, who could be ventilated. Right, right. Now, I think the number is up to six or 7,000. You mean because so of the limitation of machines, the number of machines? Or? Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. We, we, we don't have enough ICU capacity. So, you know, some people will have no symptoms. Some people... and will stay at home and they have moderate symptoms and they can mild or moderate symptoms to get over it. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure you've had a cold from time to time and oh, yeah. sometimes it's mild, sometimes it's severe, mm -hmm. right? You suffer for a few days, but you get better. Then there are people at the other end, people who might just get away with just using oxygen, mm -hmm. you know, but then there are people who need to be ventilated. And pe those people who need to be ventilated need to be in uh, 
support supported circumstances you can't just set up a ventilator in chani chok for instance you know yeah. that's not possible right i'm sorry you have to be in a high tech uh, and the idea of of damping down things is to reduce the number of people at the severe end of the spectrum right and it's what they call i'm sure you've heard the term flattening, flattening the, curve. the curve yeah of course of course yeah, that's I what they're sure. trying to do they're not trying to get rid of the infection it's not possible right right but and i think that's an important do, point that to yeah. understand that this is it's only flattening the curve makes sense to me not to overwhelm like they've been like flattening the yeah. curve don't overwhelm the nhs system don't don't overwhelm the the indian healthcare system but two things it's, uh, it's it's any healthcare system any healthcare system yeah of course don't, that, that's why they want to uh, they want to flatten yeah. the curve so that uh, at any given point of time no hospital is or, or no medical facility is overwhelmed by the number of people but that's just but, two points uh, related to that that i wanted to come to one you spoke about uh, ventilators now uh apparently 90% of the people who have been put on vent ventilators for this haven't made it so there is a big debate about uh whether ventilators are a good um you know life saving tool for this particular disease and in in continuation of that because a lot of doctors that i've been listening to and some of them are really big and i i heard like a 2 hour podcast on uh, tony robbins uh, did a podcast and he got people from stanford and cleveland clinic and these are the who's who nobel prize winning guys of course and, and, and honestly they were basically saying that ventilators are not working for this it is presenting itself as a kind of you know people are presenting themselves as someone who's got decompression sickness or someone who's you know been left on top of mount everest without acclimatizing and some sort of hypoxic i mean i don't know the technical terms here but basically they're saying that they need oxygen not a ventilator and effectively you put the guy on the ventilator and 90% of them are going to die and this is in a mainstream podcast by some very very big guys saying this so that kind of threw me back that that you know essentially they said a ventilator is a death sentence for these guys um i think that's um um the problem, one of the things that and this is where there's a limitation in our understanding i mean this is a massive outbreak we understand very little about the mm -hmm. virus but you will have i don't know if you've heard of this term cytokine yes, storm so, yep yeah so what tends to happen is that there is an more enormous inflammatory reaction in some people mm -hmm. we don't really understand why there is that huge inflammatory reaction but um i had not heard and forgive me but i didn't realize that the mortality rate was 90% i thought it was 50% but i think that statistic is uh, kind of uh, geared towards new york that 80 to 90% of people put on um yeah. died in new york and even if it is 50% i think that's that's quite a frightening statistic it's a frightening statistic but i think um, again this is where epidemiology is useful mm -hmm. so you're saying you know what proportion of people have severe infection and right. that's not 100% clear yet right and then you're saying that what proportion of people can get away with just using oxygen mm -hmm. which is what you were saying right right and then what proportion of those people 
require ventilation right mm -hmm. right and then if it is you know if if the rate is one in two or one in in you know one in ten that survive mm -hmm. um it's actually a small proportion of the total number of people sure, that become sure. infected. I appreciate that, that part, yeah. So, yes, it is a frightening statistic when someone says, look, there's 100% mortality or 90% mortality from ventilators, but you have to look at it in proportion to the population that's becoming infected. Um, not everyone who gets COVID-19 will end up in that situation. Right. And we're still learning. We just don't know because it's such a um, very early on in the outbreak. And I haven't kept up with the research. They were saying that the lining in the lungs becomes so severely infected, uh, inflamed that, uh, you know, that's what causes the, the mortality. Right. Um, and I think we just don't know enough about it. Right. I'm sure there is some virologist or some immunologist somewhere working on it. Mm -hmm. But um, I was looking at the literature today. So I'm involved in, in, in PNG, we're trying, in Papua New Guinea, we're trying to reassure health workers that the majority of people who get this infection will be fine. And I was just looking at the literature and there is nothing to inform us about what tips someone over uh, into um, the severity. You know, we can say, yes, it's broadly diabetics, it's people with cardiovascular prob heart problems and, you know, lung problems, but we don't know what are the specific factors that tip people over mm -hmm. into that severe category. Right. So a second part of that first was about ventilators. We were talking about lockdown versus slowdown. And then you, you mentioned uh, a, a few. So things. what is actually interesting, sorry yeah, to yeah, interrupt you. Uh, yeah. But what's interesting is that we've had lots of innovations. Yeah. So people are now making ventilators out of um, all sorts of recycled materials right. that could be used. Doesn't need to be an ICU. Okay. You know? It could be just a supported environment. Mm -hmm. So um, a ventilator is complicated to some level, but if right. we can we can simplify the technologies, which mm -hmm. apparently some groups are working on. There's a group down here in Australia in Brisbane that's working on a very simple ventilator right. that could be used in a whole variety of different circumstances. So amongst all this carnage and chaos hmm. we've had progress which we will benefit from in the future right but typically when a patient when you ventilate a patient using a ventilator i believe that there are four three or four different doctors that have to look after and there's an anesthesiologist there's a uh, i think that the main yeah. physician because you have to you're literally putting the guy in a coma i mean i don't want to be crude about it but that's what it is right you have to put the patient in a comatose state in order for the patient to accept that uh, violent procedure, yeah. I can call it. It is a bit of a violent procedure. Well, it's, it, um, how can I put this, Yami? It's not a violent procedure. Well, because lots of people get ventilated. You know, you, you have 
someone may be involved in a massive um, road traffic accident and they, you know, in order to help their recovery, you might need to ventilate, you might need to put them into a coma, if you like, and ventilate them whilst they're recovering to a degree. There are many, many conditions in which we actually put people into intensive care units and we, we ventilate them. Um, Thank you for pointing that out. I hadn't thought about it as a violent... Uh... I, I'm just trying to think because, you know, any, I mean, I'm an asthmatic. It's easy to get me uh, claustrophobic. So, to, to, you know, thinking of something being shoved down my, my throat, uh, of course, to keep me alive, apparently, but it's just, it's just you know, comes across as like a violent thing to me. But, uh... <laughs> it's, um, um, how can I put it? It's not really just shoving a tube down your throat. It's a... Uh, you know, they tend to do it in very, try and, I mean, yes, in some situations you have to do that, but in other situations they try and do it in a controlled fashion to cause as little trauma to the, uh, you know, to the patient as possible. Um, but sure. I, I think you're right. I, I completely, I hadn't really thought of it as a, a violent act. But well, I, 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 I would not want you as a doctor to think of it as a violent act because you are no, 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 but it's, you're looking at saving lives and their moment. And I'm sure like you're not bothered about, is this guy going to feel this injection? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I think it's important also. I mean, thank you for pointing that out because sometimes we don't, in that situation, you don't kind of think about it from the patient's point of view. You're kind of thinking, as you said, you know, what can you do to to get this person ventilated and oxygenated as fast as possible. Sure. Yeah. So my second point uh, around the lockdown was going to be, how do you build herd immunity if you've locked down half the world? And what is herd immunity? And again, this is a word that suddenly is very popular. How does that happen? Because... Well, I think, again, you ask an impossibly, um, impossibly good question. Even Sweden, which didn't go down for a lockdown, um, um, only 7% or 7.5%, it's, it's around that number of people had antibodies, um, okay. you know. So the question is that if only a few people develop antibodies, mm -hmm. uh, and this comes back to um, this notion, well, what works, what doesn't work, we don't know. We don't know which antibodies are protective and how long they're going to be protective for and whether you can get the virus, whether you can get the infection again. Yeah, that's um, a question I wanted to ask you that because I, I, we keep, I mean, this is a discussion within the family that once I've got it, am I not immune? Can I get it again? Or will I get it to a less severe extent? Is the scary answer that we just don't know enough yet? No, we don't, just don't know. Tell you, you know, you can tell your parents and everyone you live with you know, life's a bitch and then you die. It's, that's it's, a good comeback. I'll make a note of that one. Life's a bitch. And yeah, but, but that's a, that's quite scary for, for me to hear because you, but it's, typically we've been, we've been taught to believe that once you get something, you, you kind of become immune to it. And that's how vaccines so-called work and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now, <laughs> again, you know, you raise an interesting point. I don't, we don't know how effective or useful coronavirus vaccines are going to be if, they, if we ever get a vaccine that works. Right. We also don't know whether we're going to have to vaccinate people every year, mm -hmm. you know, and then if the virus mutates, will that require us to 
you know, like the flu vaccine, yeah. um, you have to have a different flu vaccine every year. Right. Yeah. Um, what I would say to you is that, I mean, what we're doing here is we're vaccinating all our patients. Uh, we're trying to vaccinate the population against flu because um, you don't want to get flu and Corona at the same time. Right. So okay. there are lots of unanswered questions about the coronavirus, and anyone that says to you that they know, they're talking crap. Um, I think they're being economical with the truth. As okay. you know. That's a good way to put it. So, so in terms of herd immunity, the answer is that we don't have the answer at the moment. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think that's 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 true. I mean, you know, epidemiologists will. Um, uh, unpack this over a period of time um, and you know the virus only emerged last year at some stage so we don't really have have the answers we don't even know what herd immunity means in the context of of uh, COVID-19 right, right. I mean, I'm sure there's a I'm sure you'll find an expert out there who will tell you that if we can get herd immunity um, you know things will be fine the question is what does herd immunity mean? Now, it's much simpler if you're talking about measles, mumps, and all those things you might have been vaccinated against because measles is a very stable virus. Right. It, it took us a long time to get a vaccine. Mm -hmm. The issue is not how effective the vaccine is. The issue is what proportion of the population you vaccinate. Okay. Right? Then with some, with some vaccines like the whooping cough vaccine, we know that the immunity wears off after a period of time okay. and you have to re-vaccinate people. Right. But we don't have that information about COVID-19, not yet anyway. You and know, in a year it might be different, but at the moment we don't have that information. I was reading somewhere that uh, one of the experts out of New York, a uh, doctor who was saying that it's essentially, a, I don't know now, this is, this is, he said it's a cousin of the common cold. Have you ever heard of a vaccine for the common cold? And because it mutates so many times, there can't be a virus, uh, there can't, can't be a vaccine for the common cold. So how can there be a vaccine for uh, COVID-19? And I mean, I, I think he, he's right. I mean, this is, um, I hate to call this a variation of the common cold because it can be quite a severe infection right, in some right. people. Um, and I think like the viruses, the respiratory virus, the common cold or respiratory viruses, there's a quite a group of them that mm. can cause the same symptoms that you get in the upper respiratory tract. Okay. And of course, in its mildest form, this, you know, the coronavirus could fit into that group. Right. But I think it's a brave person that calls this a cousin of the cold. <laughs> um, you know, I, again, um, I'm sorry to sound so boring, but we just don't have enough information. No, but boring is good because boring is, is fa factual in terms of, uh, I'm glad that there is someone with your uh, repute and your background who can say that we don't know enough rather than just saying that because I am X, Y, Z, I, this is my theory and I have the answers to all the questions. Yeah. And that's and, what and, a lot of people are trying to do is just that, you know, I'm Nobel laureate from X, Y, Z place. So I have, this is my theory. This is my answer. And if he's proven wrong, it may cost lives. And then look, there's, um, 
there's a lot of people out there who in the context of the outbreak are saying a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But the, the problem is we don't know how true those things are. And what someone is going to have to do eventually mm. is, and, and there are certain very uh, reputable groups, like one of the um, um, uh, sources I use, is, it's called Up to Date. Okay. It's an American source, Up to Date, U-P-T-O-D-A-T-E. It's a website? Um, yeah, it's an American medical resource. Right, right. And what it's doing is it's updating almost weekly right. information about COVID-19. So the, the, I forget the author's name, but what he's doing is he's looking at all the stuff and he's going every week, he's updating it and he's going, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. You know, for instance, you remember a few, um, you may remember a few weeks ago, they were saying, oh, you can get, you might be able to get COVID-19 from cats or some animal transmission uh, from some. Yes, yes, yes. There was something, I, I can't recall which animal it was, but yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's right. I think it was cats. And again, there is zero, zero evidence for that. Okay. So what I'm trying to say, not too elegant a fashion, is that a lot of people are having opinions, but you don't know what, what how, you don't know what they, the validity of those things until you have hindsight. Right, right, understood. And that's, that's gonna be a painful one in this case by the looks of it because... Uh, you know, 5 million people have the infection, 350,000 people have died. Mm -hmm. You know, it's painful. It's, I had a patient today who was saying, oh, I've got this pain. And I said to him, look, I don't know what's causing the pain. Um, we've, you know, looked at this, 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 and this, mm -hmm. and we can't find a reason for your pain. Right. And I don't know where to go from there. Right? I can send you to a colleague of mine who might be able to review what we've done and if he can, if she can find a reason why you've got this pain, um, you know, I'm happy to go with what she finds. Hmm. But hmm. medicine, medicine is uncertain. So is it a lot of hit and, hit and trial, especially with things like this? So 85% of what we know is hearsay. Right. Depends on imperfect evidence, on uncertainty of what's happened in the past of our experience but you only know in hindsight whether those things have any validity or not and in terms you were just speaking about diagnosing one of your patients so i had a couple of questions which i mean i've had forever and again a lot of conflicting information the test that is being used now there's a lot of debate and conspiracy theories and all kinds of stuff on on the test itself which was originally developed in China, they used lung fluid from seven yeah. symptomatic people uh, to develop this PCR test. I don't even know what PCR stands for, but I, I'm sure you will, you can educate me on that. But now, apparently the whole test, the bloody test is flawed. What are your views on how this is being diagnosed and actually tested for? Because you've got some, the same people, like positive, negative, positive, negative. I mean, it's, it's like a coin toss almost. Some, in some yeah. cases, 
uh, I know of people who have been tested positive and negative in within the same kind of one or two week time frame. How is that possible? Or is some, there's something really wrong? So, with yeah, so that's the other thing, you know, um, people often believe that if they've had a test, mm -hmm. that there's a hundred percent certainty around whether it's positive or negative. Okay. There is not. Oh God. That's more bad news though. Sorry. That's bad news. <laughs> are you, are you sure, sure you want to hear me yeah, talk? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, you know, if you take a, the, uh, let me start off by saying what a PCR test is. So what happens is that COVID-19 is an RNA virus. Do you know what RNA and DNA is? Yeah, but can you please educate us on that? Because these so, are RNA, it's the genetic material. Um, I mean, you know, just putting it simply, it's a genetic material. So what they do is they take a little bit of that genetic material mm -hmm. and they amplify it. Right. Right. So, like they put it in a, you know, they have a, have media, they amplify it. So even if you, with PCR tests, they're called polymerase chain reaction tests, Mm -hmm. You can take one or two bits of a of genetic material from an organism, mm -hmm. and then you can amplify it. So you get okay. billions and billions of um, different pieces. And then what they do is they take um, they they take that amplified organism mm -hmm. and they add a color to it. Okay. So it can tell you whether it's positive or okay. negative right. with a color change. Okay. 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 Now, um, so not all tests are the same. Okay. Just like not all cars are the same. Right. So uh, I don't know what sort of car you've got, but mm -hmm. say you, I mean, I'm dreaming here. Say maybe you've got a, you know, a Lamborghini four wheel drive, <laughs> right? But you're yeah. driving around um, Delhi. Right. If you hit something, uh -huh. you'll get millions of airbags coming out. Right. Whereas if you're in a tuk-tuk, hmm. there's no protection. Right. Okay, so you can drive somewhere and you can be hit and you're gonna, you know, depending on the severity of the of the collision, God forbid, you know. So all these tests are like cars. Mm -hmm. There are different versions of them. And in science what we do is we try and validate those tests. So there are lots of versions of PCR tests? Yeah, so many people are using different versions of the PCR right. tests. Right. Okay. Um, so um, what I'm trying to say is that some PCR tests are robust. Okay. So they have a, um, you know, they have the capacity to pick up the disease if it exists mm -hmm. and they have the capacity to be negative when the disease doesn't exist. Okay. But there's one further element to this. It depends on the prevalence of the infection. Mm -hmm. The prevalence of the effect infection means on the amount of effect infection there is in the community. So is uh, that the same as viral load? We keep hearing this word viral load. No, no, no. It's an, it's a number of people okay. who okay. have the infection. Right. Uh, tell so, me why does why does that matter for a particular individual? I'm trying to understand that. Okay, so um, I mean, let's say I'm I'm getting a, a COVID test now. Even if 
there are nobody around me has it or in my community why should that uh why should that change my result or or have an outcome yeah. on my result because no and anyone who tells you this is lying the no test is a hundred percent sensitive or a hundred percent specific okay right so sensitivity is you pick up the disease when it's present mm -hmm. and uh, specificity is when you pick up the disease when you when you can be truly sure that the if the test is negative you don't have the infection right got it but whether or not you can interpret the test depends on how much infection you have in a community uh, uh, so you're going to be using your judgment no uh, no 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 it's called a positive predictive value right okay so okay. again it's an epidemiological comment so um even if a test is a you know if a test is say 99% sensitive and specific right if the population prevalence of the infection is low mm -hmm. then there is a risk of false positives okay okay and false negatives so they call that positive predictive value right, and a right. negative predictive value so every test you have done has a positive predictive value okay and a negative predictive value but is it fair to say that that is based on a probability based on number of infections in the community so that's is... a pro that, that's exactly right so you're understanding it right so, so the but whether there is a test some amount of guesswork i don't know it just seems a, a bit like guesswork to me in terms it's, of I mean, I, i'm guesswork. just trying to dumb it down honestly i'm not trying to take away from the <laughs> from no, no, the, no. the great um, people look, who invented it but uh, i mean thank you for putting up with it but i mean thank you for putting up with this but just because a test is positive doesn't mean that it's positive understood and just understood. because a test is negative doesn't necessarily mean it's truly negative and so where you get people who are getting false positives and false negatives you're right it could be because of the viral load right but it could just be the test is crap and when you say the test is crap now is there what see in my mind uh, this is like a test is like let's just dumb it down to like a an equation or a formula this formula was created in china and everyone is just copy pasting this formula or is it that countries have come up with their own formula and their own tests and yeah, that's so why it, some countries are better at it and some perhaps i don't know south korea may have aced it versus uh uh and, and india or uk is still struggling with it so i think you're asking the right question and i'm i'm, I'm sorry i don't have the answer for it i don't know which tests are being used in um um in different countries okay um so you know the, the test like with the ones you guys are using the test that we have um is really hard to evaluate here in australia because we don't have enough cases okay okay right, right? so so you don't so, have the predictive value is that why we don't have a um a, a a predictive value so you know even if a test is a is 99% sensitive and specific mm -hmm. if the population prevalence of the infection is low mm -hmm. then the probability of having a false positive is high, high. Understood. understood i think what i'm what i'm trying to say yame is that i know this is a really um 
difficult thing. Um, you know, we often, I have, often have patients who will say, um, you know, I haven't done X, Y, or Z, and my test is still positive. Right, right. And right. so what we say to them is, look, it could be a false positive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can't rely 100% on the result of the test. Okay. It can give a patient comfort. It gives a doctor, in fact, yeah. comfort, right? And most doctors simply, you know, with all due respect to them, they don't understand this issue. That a hundred, you know, no test has a hundred percent positive predictive value. Mm -hmm. No test has a hundred percent negative predictive value, Understood. and that's even more true with um, infections and right. PCR tests. Right, right. Now, is there a way to look at this? Is is and I or I don't know. Are you aware of anybody looking at just? Uh, and I don't want to call it reinventing the wheel, but maybe a better way to find, is there, does the technology exist to have a foolproof way to check this out or it doesn't exist yet? Just to get a hundred percent accurate result. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I can't answer that question. I'm sure there are labs around the world that are actually looking at the, at they're looking at these tests and they're looking at all the various, um, they're looking at all the various um, uh, probabilities around the test. Okay. 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 So, you know, I, 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 what I could do is um, just email. I, I know the local person in charge of the lab. I could email them and I can give you some, I could email back you some. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just uh, uh, out, of, out of interest. And maybe I can put that in the show notes of, of the podcast, because I just think uh, the diagnosis and testing is such a critical component of this particular epidemic or, or um, uh, this disease, because so much of life now is dependent on the fact, are you positive? Are you negative? Can you travel? Can you not travel? Can you can I cross into my state border? I have to quarantine. I have to show them a test. Can I get back to my office? Can I can I get back to doing anything? Uh, so this is why, and, and of course, generally, and this this test is relevant to the, the the broader discussion about herd immunity and people just getting back to their lives, which is why I wanted to just. But I've got a good understanding of what this is now, thanks to you. And uh, this positive yeah, predictive so value is I, a, is a good. I don't think there, there's any value in saying, look, I've had the infection and now I'm immune, so I can go back to doing whatever I want. I can travel um, to wherever I want. We simply don't know. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that that point a lot. And um, in the middle, there was now in India, they were saying, oh, you know, it's now the peak of summer is hitting and because it's it's hot weather. Now it's like 45 degrees Celsius at the moment, right outside this door where I'm sitting. Uh, is that going to help to reduce the infection rate? Uh, or again, we don't know enough. So again, Yamir, um, I don't know. Um, you know, the problem is in the winter, you're, uh, you're cold and a lot of people are much more together in the summer. They tend to spread out. Will that affect the transmission of the infection? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we're all... Uh, after the summer is over, you will have a better idea of um, what actually happened during the summer. But the virus isn't going to go away. I mean, maybe there will be a decline in the number of people becoming infected. But as soon as 
winter hits again and people are in in close proximity mm -hmm. um, you know the issue is close proximity right 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 so it's you nothing know, to do with the fact that it doesn't survive much in hot weather or, or they, these, are, these are just again people who are doing this is conjecture again it's conjecture I mean we don't know I mean so you know how they were saying a few weeks ago if you you know cough onto a door handle yeah, yeah. or you know cough onto a surface the virus can survive was up to six days I was told on a doorknob uh, look um, I don't know how long they were saying the problem is yes the virus may survive the question is you know if you touch that surface will you get the infection and the evidence now or some of the observations now are suggesting that that may not be the right thing right okay that's encouraging so, you know, so all this stuff of, you know, deep cleaning and all the rest of it, does it, you know, does it make a difference? We don't know. Okay. And, and you know, my, my, the, the security staff at the gate is, I've given, is sanitizing our Amazon deliveries that come every day. And they're like, you know, like, and then they put it in the sun for two hours. And so we've, we've got a little bit of a mini, <laughs> you know, containment unit thing going in our own house. But I guess everybody is an Unfortunately, it's because of fear and, and, and we don't know enough, right? So my, we're like, what's the harm? Okay, just spray it down with Dettol spray and then leave it in the sun. And they did that with some chocolate that I had ordered the other day. So that went straight into the bin because I forgot to tell them that there's some food in there or there's some edible in there. But, you know, that's just on a lighter note. But I think... Look, uh, yeah, I mean, it may turn out that it's, uh, you know, again, it may turn out... Um, Science and medicine goes around in circles. You know, um, you, you can make a certain observation and another group may make a negative observation. Another group may make a slightly positive observation. Another group may make a negative. And at the end of the day, you have to pull all this data together. Mm -hmm. It's what they call meta-analysis. Right, right. You know, where you pull together all these various studies and then you try and make sense of what is happening. Okay. So you've got to have the negative studies as well as the positive studies. And at the moment we're yo-yoing, we're saying, ah, oh, it might do this, it might do that. But in 12 months, the story may be completely different. And you mentioned that this is here to stay and you know, this is not going anywhere. So I learned a new word, word yesterday called endemic. Can you just yeah. maybe speak about uh, why this epidemic is going to if, if become an endemic? So epidemic just means that you've gotten, you know, you've got increasing numbers of cases and you try and cope with them. Uh, endemic means it's become embedded in the population. Like you a know, swine flu I, now, because every year we have swine flu in Delhi now, at least in Delhi we do. Yeah. So and we just live with it, and we're not afraid of it, and we're not sanitizing the hell out of each other. Yeah. Uh, so is that where this is? I mean, I know this is just a guess. I know it's a guess. Endemic means it's embedded in the population. You just have to live with it. But it, the the signs and your experience says that this is where it looks like this is going to become an endemic, and we're going to have to just live oh. with the rest of our life. All but, infections have become endemic. I mean, you know, a lot of infections have become endemic. Like, for instance. You know, um, you mentioned swine flu, but also other infections like, for instance, gonorrhea. You take sexually transmitted infections, syphilis, gonorrhea, 
all those are endemic infections. They're not going away. No population has managed to eradicate those infections. So if you get exposed to the infect, and there's always within the population, there are always going to be people who are asymptomatic. Right, right. right. You, 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 I mean, I, I don't know whether, you, you know, all those people at the gate have been tested, but some no, of them might no, be. You know, it's uh, testing is such a problem in this country, city, at least in Delhi. And yeah. this is the capital at the moment, because I have to get a doctor's prescription for them to be tested. Uh, obviously, the number yeah. of tests are limited. And if I get a doctor's prescription, then I have to, the, the doctor has to inform the local authorities and then they're going to come and then they may just bloody seal my whole house. And I, I don't know. So I'm too, but see, nobody is, nobody's symptomatic. So I don't really feel the need to get them uh, tested at the moment and because they all live in house at the moment. So we're not allowing any, we, we only, whoever's in the house right now lives in the house. And then that was the condition when we, when the lockdown happened that we, we, got, we, there was some temporary staff that we uh, that was coming and going. We got rid of all of them and said, uh, just sit at home and, and, you know, just sit at home because it's not safe for you to come and go. So uh, testing is a big process at the moment here. I mean, I yeah. want to, uh, with my with my wife and my son and uh, my in-laws have a beautiful place in Goa. So we try and spend a lot of time there. And so obviously there's my, my son was about to start school. He's three schools we don't know when they're going to open so we thought okay well let's run away to goa but then there's this huge procedure of we have to get tested in delhi then we may have to get quarantined in goa so i said you know i'm not risking it let's just stay where we are we we're comfortable in our home you know let's just and also um i don't know what tests they use in india again I'm not we, sure don't either. How, we don't know how good they are mm -hmm. at picking up people with infections how good they are at picking up people without infections sure. so there's all that also all that un, un, uncertainty around it as well yeah you know? and the other the other big question is why do some countries have higher death rates than other countries you know right. and again yeah. we don't we don't understand that we simply don't understand that i was going to come to now in really the the takeaway from all the podcasts and everything that I've seen, and, and I'm going to come to that now with you is in the end, what can we do? I mean, is it just, is it just about keeping our immunity as the best we can, keeping ourselves as fit as we can and just looking after ourselves and waiting to just ride this out, you know, wait it out and ride it out. Yeah. And, and I don't and, know. Look, I think in the end, you can say with certainly this virus is not going away. Um, how can you best protect yourself? Um, and for the, you know, and for those things, we talk about having the appropriate determinants of health, you know, being able to have space, clean air, food, all those kinds, all those kinds of how good housing all those kinds of things um, can enhance your immunity. But a significant proportion of the world, and you know, you'd see it in Delhi all the time, do not have the capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably live in fairly good conditions, you know, you can protect yourself. Um, suddenly, if you know, you, you know, you don't need to have to face people who are coughing all the time and all the rest of it. That's not, unfortunately, a condition that is um, available uh, to the people that I work with. I mean, I work of a lot course. with 
First Nations people here, uh, a work overseas, it's just not possible to do that. So at the end of the day, we're very dependent on, I, I, I'm not quite sure what the right words are here, but we're very, I think we have to live with the virus. Mm. And unfortunately, some people will, most people will get away with it and some people won't. And for a significant proportion of the world, it's not going to be possible to quarantine those people. Sure, sure. And, uh, and, and I know it's depressing, but I don't know how to put how else to put it. Maybe depressing, but I think there's also a, a, a lot of clarity in sometimes just hearing that we don't know the answer. And sometimes it's also because not knowing the answer is an answer versus having 1000 answers to the same question. Like, uh, I forgot to ask you about, uh, I'm going to just come back to immunity in a second. I forgot to ask you like in terms of masks. Now there is there's so much conflicting. What, what are your views? I mean, do I need to wear a mask or do I not need to wear a mask? Look, the masks, if you're, you're uh, working with people who have the infection, sure. you need the appropriate masks, mm -hmm. right? And, and then just putting on a mask is not enough. You've got to know how to put on a mask, how to take it off. So there's all this stuff around PPE. It's not simply just putting on a mask and just taking it off. I mean, things have to be done in a sequence. You have to have the right kind of protection. Um, cloth masks are useful if someone, so, you know, what we've said in our clinic situation is that you know, if someone's really coughing, we don't want to see them. Okay. In places like Papua New Guinea, where I work, what we advise people to do is, is if someone comes in and they're coughing, mm -hmm. you can use a cloth mask. But you, the, the person coughing. The, the, the person coughing. Right. But not the health worker. Cloth masks in health workers increase the risk of a, acquiring coronavirus. So, so does the health worker need to wear a properly fitted PPE yeah. or are you yeah. saying that the health so obviously the health worker has to wear a proper PPE? The health worker, if they're dealing with someone that's, you know, um, got a cough of any kind and it's often difficult to diagnose it as um, Corona, it might be something else like TB, sure. for instance. Sure. Sure. So, you know, we say you need to have proper masks. If you don't have, pro and I've just written a, like a, a short WhatsApp message that we're going to send out to our health workers. If you don't have masks, mm -hmm. make sure that the person that you're taking, you're seeing is at least 1.5 to two meters away from you. Okay. Okay. One. Secondly, when you're examining them or dealing with them, tell them that if they're going to cough, they should cough in a direction that doesn't face you. Okay that you shouldn't, you should sit asymmetrically. So you're Understood. not Understood. in their line. Understood. When you're examining them, make sure that their face is turned away. Okay. And, and so we try and do that because not everyone has access to the right sort of masks, you know, and the right PPE for that matter. But as, so as, a, as someone who's symptomatic, I understand if someone is symptomatic, you're coughing, wear a mask, even if whatever the hell mask you can get a hold of, just wear something to prevent that from 
expanding of spreading 10x it's still going to spread through whatever you're wearing maybe it's going to spread 1x versus 10x but uh, yeah. uh, so someone yeah. who's symptomatic should definitely wear a mask uh, someone who's symptomatic should wear a mask because it'll contain it'll contain you know the the spread of the respiratory droplets okay um, but if I but there is no evidence to suggest that health workers in a routine clinic should be wearing a mask okay, okay. just that there's no evidence for that because um not at the moment and i know certain countries have said have said you can't leave your house unless you wear a mask yeah that's the rule here that's the rule in delhi yeah, yeah. you can't leave without a mask yeah i mean the rationale for that is to if the person is coughing or sneezing is to contain it within the mask understood and, yeah. and to some extent that does make sense um but the evidence that masks can stop this infection from spreading um, is simply not there. Oh, what? Uh, okay, understood. Sorry. No, no, that's fine. At least we've we've got that that answer, and uh, we we discussed. And, and hydrochloroquine is of course been on because since Trump has been taking it, I mean, there's been a bit of a joke going on about that. Uh, and I know and, that you've dealt with this uh, drug because you've treated a lot of patients with malaria uh, over I, your. I've, tr I've treated patients with malaria. We also use it for arthritis. Um, okay. And uh, it's a drug which is unpleasant, which can have effects on your eye. It can also sort of uh, um, have effects on your heart as well. So mm -hmm. it's not a drug that you you should use lightly. And, and also you may have seen, I think yesterday or today, WHO has stopped some trials. Yes, yes because I, I got an alert on that. Yeah. Of days so people on hydroxychloroquine are, um, are are dying earlier. So they've stopped the trials. And normally, when you have a trial of a drug, you have endpoints. Normally, if if the drug drug tends to be turns out to be more toxic than you think, mm -hmm. you simply stop the trial okay. because the evidence is overwhelming. And that's the the evidence with hydroxychloroquine and and is it possible that a drug like hydroxychloroquine can quite uh, can treat malaria quite comfortably versus yeah. in this new disease that nobody knows much about the same drug can actually create more complications that's quite possible yeah, yeah. it's completely possible i mean you know we are talking about two different conditions Mm -hmm. Two different types of immunological responses. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. And but in terms of so people are popping this as a as a or, the, or some people like Trump are popping this as a preventive is doesn't seem like a good idea to you. I'm not. I, 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 I'm. I'm not sure whether Trump is actually propping. Uh, you know, popping this drug or just saying he's popping it because. Okay. Uh, he ordered million. He ordered the FDA to buy millions of doses of this drug. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. The the man's impossible to read. But in terms of a general healthy person, using it as a preventive is not a good idea, in your opinion. No, because it's a hydroxychloroquine is a fairly toxic drug. Okay. Yeah. I mean, all you know, it's it's not like popping lollies. I mean, not yeah, that yeah. lollies are safe. I mean, the more lollies you pop, you know. Yeah, sugar. <laughs> yeah, sugar. So, 
it's it's not a no medication is um what you say is um you know side effect free i mean there's always a price to be paid with some drugs understood last couple of questions uh, yeah we were speaking about immunity so you know typically what i mean i've been telling people is just we mega doses of vitamin c and keep your vitamin d levels good and zinc is a new one which everyone's talking about so i see no harm so i just started supplementing with like a 50 milligrams of zinc every day uh any thoughts on dosages or or anything else that one needs to do because because i know that none of us get sufficient nutrients from our our, our diet because we don't eat like that and we don't eat those quantities um look i, I think um generally speaking if you're talking about diets if you've got a healthy diet you'll get all the stuff that you need from the diet um we uh, in our line of work i discourage people from taking multivitamins because most of the time you just pee out the multivitamins yeah um i there is little evidence to suggest that vitamins are the supplement unless you've got a poor diet mm. um that supplementing vitamins makes a difference coming to covid-19 um the evidence around vitamin c zinc and and vitamin d is actually anecdotal and poor so you made that in, that point that yes you know there is some peripheral evidence that suggests that vitamins like c and d and uh, zinc can improve people's immune system but it is peripheral evidence it's anecdotal and you know i know a lot of you know cricket mega stars and uh, other people promote vitamins you know like ricky ponting here in mm. australia is a um, an advocate for uh, multivitamins but the evidence is really poor okay but what we have noticed however is that if someone's been on multivitamins for a long time and you stop them suddenly right they feel really awful right got it got it we, we don't good. understand we don't understand the mechanism for that so i often will say to to my patients look you're spending all this money on multivitamins you might as well give that money to me i'll give you some <laughs> colored water and you know i'll say this is you know good for you and you can take it so you think there's um, a bit of a placebo involved um there is a huge if you someone has a reasonable diet then there's a lot of placebo involved in that okay. but there is that what i was saying there is that situation where some people feel really awful when you stop the multivitamins but we don't know whether that's placebo or whether it's a real effect okay and so often i will say look if you're coming off multivitamins or you're coming off vitamin c or d or whatever let's do it slowly and gradually rather than you know stop So what I'm saying is again there's a lot of yeah mate there's a lot of uncertainty about this got it got it and uh before I close I wanted to ask you I read the other day that there is some again now again this must be I know I I can guess what your answer is going to be but like o blood groups people who have o blood groups are they're saying are not getting this disease is that possible it's it's possible i mean we know that people who have it's not the blood groups themselves but there are certain um so you have each cell in your body like a white blood cell will have a receptor on it 
that deals with an infection and there are some people with certain, uh, certain groups of people don't have receptors on these cells. So it's not the blood group itself, but there are some other characteristics of blood groups that can actually um, predict whether someone will be resistant to an infection or not. Uh, okay. And uh, you've caught, caught me on the hop. I, I don't know whether blood groups makes a difference. I don't think blood groups makes a difference. I think that the receptors that the virus, so there will be some people, the, the, the receptor uses, a, the virus uses a certain receptor to enter the cell okay. before it multiplies. Mm -hmm. Now, whether they're referring, there will be some people who don't have that receptor. Okay. So they will be resistant to the virus. And it's possible that a certain blood group is kind does not have that receptor or it's a, it's a random... not, a, not not a blood group okay okay it's a it's a particular genetic character characteristic okay okay okay, okay. So, that's, that's so that you there's it's impossible to know who may or may not have that unless you uh, test for it at, at the moment i can't let me give you an analogy in in hiv hmm. we know that if you have a if you don't have a certain receptor which is called a ccr5 receptor uh -huh. then the virus can't enter the cells, you can't become infected, you're immune to the infection. Okay. Um, and I don't know enough about whether there are people around that don't have the receptor that the COVID virus uses to enter the cell. Okay, okay. That, that, right. that's, that's fair. And what I wanted to finally ask you was, you know, in terms of what the future holds in terms of epidemiology and other diseases like this one coming on board and, and prevention of future pandemics and stuff like that. I mean, what, where is this area heading now? And I'm sure there's a lot of emphasis on that happening. Um, I think I th we have to learn from, um, from this outbreak. Um, the world is much more interconnected now. And so um, the lessons that we learned from this pandemic will, you know, will inform us in the future. We're not gonna be able to stop viruses from emerging but we may be able to contain them better. Um, okay. You know, so it's as, it's as simple as that, I, I, you know. But um, there's no doubt that we will see many, many more of uh, these always coming because that's the way the nature works. We will see many infections coming. There is no way that, and infections also mutate all the time. So there's no way that, you know, um, it's the end. It, HIV has been around for 20 or 30 years and we still don't have a vaccine. Right. You know, right. Uh, malaria has been around for hundreds of years and we have a vaccine, but it's imperfect. Right. TB is around for a, has been around for a long time um, and we still haven't got on top of it. So there are, inf there are, there are very few infections that we've managed to control. Okay. Yeah. Hepatitis B, we've got a great vaccine for hepatitis B, but it's probably, you know, an infection that causes a lot of problems around the world. So, yeah, I mean, what I would say is uncertainty is not an enemy, you know, yes. uncertainty is a way forward. I mean, uncertainty allows us to open doors and understand things. Certainty encourages complacency. Certainty encourages complacency. Wow, that's a good one to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. Arun Menon. So that was uh, my chat with 
Dr. Arun Menon, and what I really appreciate is his ability to say that we don't know enough and uh, that we're still learning as it goes. And, and that's, a, that's a quality that I'm going to try and imbibe and take it from me and not try and try and answer every question, especially yeah. when you don't. I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage to say, I don't know. And I think that is an answer in itself. Not knowing is more than having uh, several answers to the same question. Because when you have multiple answers to the same question, uh, most of them are incorrect. I hope you enjoyed that long and informative chat of mine with Dr. Arun Menon. I have learned so much and got so many answers and closure on a lot of issues that were bothering me and that were on my mind about this subject in particular. I think what's most important and respectable is that he has the ability to say, I don't know. And he has the ability to educate us and tell us that no one knows enough about this at the moment and about several of the answers. No one has those answers. So I respect that a lot. I hope you got something interesting out of this. Let's go away from this on a positive note once again. Get our immune systems ready for this. This is here to stay. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because we are a resilient race. Human beings have survived for viruses and things like this for thousands and thousands of years. We're going to beat this one too. And life is going to continue as it always has been. Till next time, take care of yourself. Bye. Voices in My Head is created and hosted by Yami Radhar. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. We disclaim responsibility for any adverse effects that may arise from any information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guests' qualifications or credibility. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.